back to Upon This Rock. My name is Max Thomas. Um, hey, earlier this season, I uh, announced some what I think is uh, exciting news. I launched a Substack page where I'm doing some writing, and um, I have a number of different things on my Substack feed. And uh, what I thought I would do here uh, today, and I think I might do another one as well, uh, is take some of the pieces from my Substack page and um, turn them into uh, a podcast so that you can get a little bit of a feel of what I'm doing over there and some of the things that I'm writing over there. I've got some uh, reflections. Most of them are, are some kind of theological reflection, whether that's on uh, the lectionary readings for uh, every Sunday or on a, a person or a topic or a particular uh, passage. And so I thought I'd bring uh, some of those over. I may just do this from time to time, honestly. And um, I'll link my Substack feed in the description below. And so if you want to see what else uh, is on my feed, you can do that there. And if you want to become a subscriber um, to get access to everything, you can do that there as well. Um, but so I thought I'd just turn uh, one of these into an episode. This is something I wrote, uh, actually, I wrote in December of last year. And uh, and then put on the on the Substack feed right when I I launched it. And um, this is a reflection on uh, Mary, the mother of God. It's called "On Being a Prophetic People," a reflection on the Mary, the mother of God. Uh, which, as a Protestant, you know, I I just recognize right away up front that this is not this is unfamiliar territory. Put it that way, this is unfamiliar territory to most of us that we. Um, you know, we associate Mary very much with Catholicism, and uh, most of us, if we're honest, uh, with mainly negative things. And I've been really fortunate in my life to have a great friend of mine uh, who is a Catholic priest. We met all the way back in our undergrad 15 years ago, and both ended up going to seminary, both ended up going into ministry. He's uh, a priest at a Catholic parish in North Dakota, and now, you know, I've been kind of all over and now am overseas, and we've stayed in touch uh, via email for 15 years. We've actually only spoken on the—we've never spoken on the phone, and we've uh, only—we had a Zoom call together uh, one time about six months ago or something like that, but previous to that, for 15 years, we had been basically pen pals, uh, email pen pals. And uh, we've stayed in touch for all these years. And most of our discussion is, you know, just about how we're doing in our own life. But a lot of it is theological discussion and and biblical discussion. And so he's helped me over the years um, just have some really good discussion about Mary and what Catholics believe, don't believe uh, in general. Obviously, different places around the world that Catholicism is... You know, a little bit different. It's not a monolith, just like Protestantism is not a monolith. And um, so, anyway, uh, so I, hopefully, I, I picked this one out because I thought it would be maybe an interesting reflection uh, for most of my, since most of not maybe all of my Protestant or uh, listeners are are Protestant. So, um, so this is a, a short reflection um, on on being a prophetic people and Mary being um, an image or to maybe even push it a little further, a kind of icon of what it means to be a prophetic people. 
Uh, I want to begin actually with a, a verse out of Numbers, uh, Numbers eleven twenty nine, where Moses says, uh, "Oh, that all of the Lord's people were prophets, and the Lord would put His Spirit upon them." And obviously, we we know that uh, in a measure that that is uh, happens in Christ, that in Christ we all. Uh, have the Spirit to put upon us, and we all become carriers of God's Word. And, um, and that's kind of what I want to, to reflect on uh, in, in this. So um, l- let's, let's jump in here. So throughout the Old Testament, God would, um, he would anoint particular men and women to be bearers of His Word. And these prophets were called to not only speak an oracle, but embody the life of that said word, but to live it out, to bear up the burden that accompanied it. Um, take, for example, Hosea. Uh, he not only called adulterous Israel back to covenant faithfulness, he actually married a harlot and lived out the very word that he was proclaiming. He bore the grief of a bridegroom uh, and of the bridegroom God in his own flesh and bone, He felt the agony of being betrayed in his own heart and wept as his lover continually left him for another, just as Israel had done time and time and time again to God. Contrast uh, Hosea with Jonah, uh, for another example, who eventually spoke the word of the Lord to Nineveh, but he failed to come under that burden. Um, and therefore, he ends up at odds with God and his ways, right? That's why he runs away. And this kind of burden-bearing is at the heart of the prophetic tradition. And that tradition, I think, comes to its head with Mary of Nazareth. When the angel shows up to Mary, she's given no description other than being betrothed to Joseph and a virgin, This unknown young woman will be, uh, the angel says, overshadowed by the Spirit, just like the prophets of old would have been um, overshadowed, or often would say that the Spirit would come upon them, and they would utter divine speech. Um, To this, theologian Robert Jensen says, But by the Spirit's coming upon Mary, she does not, like other prophets before or around her, bring forth a speech. She brings forth a child. Mary is the prophet who utters forth the eternal word himself. This, I believe, is the first thing that it means for us to be a prophetic people. That we are the ones that carry God's word in our bodies. Obviously not in the same way that Mary did in hers, but she, I think, does become a picture for us. But lest that become something purely exciting or that we somehow trivialize it, and and surely some of us do, in the tradition that I come from, we love to say things like, the word of the Lord, or God said, or I'm carrying a word of the Lord, something of of those nature. And, And many times when we say those things, they are trivial, um... They are light. They don't carry weight. We, we say them very flippantly. We say them very unconvincingly, even to ourselves. 
and you'll get people saying contradictory things, uh, and and nobody will you know bat an eye. And so, unless we trivialize that or or make it something shallow, I, I think we should notice a few things from Mary's story that will be true, I think, of any true word that we do bear in our own bodies. And I say that bearing in our own bodies because to bear God's word is not just speech. It is, as Paul would say, he bears the marks of Christ in his body. He bears the word of Christ in his body. He bears the life and the death of Christ in his body. And we, as God's body, as Christ's body, are meant to do that very same thing. So these three things. First, any true word of God, I think it will trouble us. Mary's immediate response is not one of hope or promise or joy. It's trouble. And God's words are always troubling because they're always more than we could ask or imagine. It's precisely in the troubling nature of God's word come to us that creates both the friction of sanctification and the possibility of the goodness of God to revive our dead hearts and heal this wounded world. Christ is the crucified God, and by his wounds we are healed. The wounded one wounds us with his very wounds and thereby heals us. Emmanuel, God with us, is nowhere but within the troubling words of God spoken even to the purest of hearts. Second, Mary is puzzled by what this could possibly mean and how it could happen. And the prophets rarely know how God will accomplish a particular word. That's not really their concern most of the time. But by embodying it and speaking it, the Spirit is given room to bring forth all things. And most of what gets passed for prophecy today is, is actually the exact opposite, in my estimation. It's very concerned with how things will happen in the way that they will come about and the details of all of these things. And the prophets of old... To me, they seem to be saying something different. They aren't concerned with how something is necessarily going to happen. What they're doing in their proclamation of God's Word is they are embodying it. They're making room for the Spirit to bring forth that which the Spirit desires to bring forth. But even when there is no room, think of of Bethlehem. God will make a way where there is no way. He'll make a way in the desert because there is uh, nothing that can keep God from being God to us and our neighbors. And this also stands in contrast, I think, to our modern Pentecostal charismatic prophetic tradition because we will say things like, No prophecy is guaranteed. Uh, You have to cooperate with God to make it happen. You have to do your part. God will do God's part, but you have to do your part. And there is a sense in which that is true. Our participation does matter. We work out our 
our salvation with fear and trembling. We don't get to just sit on our hands. But there is a way to speak about that, and I, I fear that often we do, that is unfaithful because it makes the, the burden rest upon our own shoulders. It makes you the determiner of whether something happens or not. And so when it doesn't happen, it's your fault. And this is, this, people feel this all the time in these circles, is prophecies are, are given forth, and then time goes by, and months and years, and they don't see what it is they were promised to see. And one of the things that they immediately do is they turn inward and say, I must have done something wrong, or I must have not done something that I was supposed to do. And some of that may be human nature, but I think some of that is the way that we frame our conversation about prophecy. The God of the prophets, yes, calls his prophets into participation. He calls Hosea to marry Gomer, not so that he can bring about a particular end, but so that he can be an embodiment of what God is already doing and bringing about. So God is the one who is going to bring it about, and he is looking for a an image. He is looking for a partner. He is looking for someone who is joined to them, joined to him in that work. And there's a world of difference in those things. And so when God brings forth a prophetic word in our day and in our time, he isn't necessarily looking for who can I bring this to pass through. He's the one that is going to bring it to pass with or without us in some sense. What he's looking for is someone to carry that life and make room in their life for that word to, to come forth so that they can be the place in which God and his word and his purposes are birthed. Uh, thirdly, God's word will always push us farther into dependence on others. Mary's first decision after the angel left was to go and to seek the wisdom of Elizabeth. True prophets are not lone rangers or cowboys out in the wilderness on their own, fighting evildoers. This was Elijah's mistake when he confessed, I'm alone, I'm the only one left, and when God actually still had thousands hidden in faithfulness. A true word from God will not drive you or me into caves of isolation, self-importance, or you know, pitiful superiority like Elijah but into the homes of mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters of the faith. It will drive us, another way to say this, I think, is it will not drive us out of the church, it will drive us into the church. And too much of our prophecy today, it happens on the fringes of the church. And by necessity, because the way that they are, the way that, our modern so-called prophets present themselves is as on the fringes of the church. And it, I think it's, again, meant to be the exact opposite, that the prophetic word is meant to drive us into the church, farther into the church, and the prophets are meant to drive us farther into the church. Once the angel has announced his entire message to the young handmaiden. She utters her most famous line, Behold the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. 
And on first reading, her declaration rings the tone of Isaiah 6, when the prophet comes into the temple, sees the Lord high and lifted up, and utters his famous speech, Here I am, send me. But Mary isn't just given a divine word to speak into the world, like Isaiah said. And as Jensen pointed out earlier, she births the word made flesh. The one on the throne, the one high and lifted up, has come into her womb. But let us not think that this is a kind of stooping or humiliation. This is precisely what God's holiness and glory looks like. That's exactly what John tells us, that the Word made flesh has tabernacled among us, has dwelt among us, and that we've beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And the temple of Isaiah 6 is the very womb of Mary, and now the very life of the church, His temple, not made by human hands. God coming through Mary in lowliness and poverty is not something other than God. It is the revelation of God because God is lowly. He is humble. He is meek. He is poor. And all of this comes about through Mary's acquiescence to God's word and spirit. And the other echo that we should hear in Mary's response is Genesis 1, where the creator God gives the divine fiat, the let it be. And so here, as God's new creation and the second Adam is breaking into his world, his let it be is, in a sense, dependent on Mary's let it be, who is a kind of new Eve. And so what does it mean for us to be a prophetic people? I'm going to quote my friend, uh, Chris Green, And I think he has it exactly right here. He says it this way. And precisely in this way, she serves as our example, showing us that to be prophetic is to let God happen to you and in you. And I think that's exactly right. But he continues. Like Israel's other prophets, she is anointed by the Spirit, burdened with the word of the Lord. But God not, not only speaks to her, God becomes her child, dependent on her mercy, needing her attention, desperate for her care. Just so, she uniquely models for us the faithful life, showing what it means to bear and to nurture the Word of God in ways that are good for us and good for others. I think Green puts his finger exactly on it and what it means to be a prophetic people that we must learn, and this is for sure something to be learned, that we must learn to let God happen to us and in us in every manner of way. This is what Hosea was doing when he married Gomer and what Jonah was not doing when he ran and when he cursed the withered plant in resistance to God's mercy towards Nineveh. It's only when we echo God's let it be with our own let it be that the new creation and the life of Christ can come forth. Later, Jesus would express this same sentiment to his disciples when he told them that that only those who allow him to wash their feet have any part in him. In order to live in the divine life, we must learn to let God first serve us. Again, for no other reason except that this is what God is like, a humble servant, washing others clean. Before we can do anything for God, 
or the world, we must allow God to happen to us, to serve us, to wash us, to cleanse our lips with a fiery lump of coal, and to come and eat with us under the trees of Mamre. To be clear, I'm not saying that this is, uh, what I'm not saying is that God's goodness to you or the world depends solely on your response. Like I've said that earlier. Surely not. God loves your neighbor and your enemy far more uh, than you dream than to depend on you. He just, he's not going to bank the life of your enemy or the life of your neighbor or the life of your family member on you. Okay. Nothing can keep God from being good to his creation because all of creation lives and moves and has its, has its being in him. But that is not to say that your let it be doesn't matter or that my let it be doesn't matter. Somehow, and this is you know, the depths of mystery here, God's word and your work, and your work come together, mutually upholding each other. And another way to, to say it is his let it be and your let it be come together in a non-competitive way. And that is, and, and again, I'm actually leaning on Chris Green here. To me, that is the, the, the key point, is that we tend to set human will and the divine will in any of our discussions about them. We set them in competition with each other. But what we have to try and reach for is a way to talk about God's let it be and your let it be, coexisting in a non-competitive way where neither violates or victimizes the other. Because God is not forceful. He does not force himself on us. He does not victimize us. He does not violate us in, in any sense. But nor is he dependent upon us in the sense that he can be anything other than who he is to us and to the world at all times. He is who he is, and nothing can keep him from being who he is to the world. And yet, that does not mean that our let it be, or that our work, or that our words are meaningless, and that God will just do what he's going to do, and it has nothing to do with us. We need to begin to reach for language that refuses to pit the let it be of God and the let it be of humanity against each other. So to allow God to happen to us and in us brings us right back to the troubling nature of God's salvation. This is, I think, in a sense, one way to read the double-edged sword that the angel warned Mary would one day pierce her own heart as her son died on a criminal's cross before her eyes. At that moment, she shared her son's agony while he was simultaneously saving the world from sin and death just as Gabriel had spoken. This was the throne of David promised, a throne not built upon the shed blood of Israel's enemies, but upon his sacrificial blood in their place. To let God happen to us is to, is to succumb our lives individually and as a community. To that, to that same piercing sword in faith that through the wounded God wounding us with his own wounds, waters of life will flow. It's to allow God to cut away all that is not his, all that is not love, so that his word can be brought forth and new creation can spring up from the ground.
If we're going to be a prophetic people, a prophetic community, we must echo Mary's let it be with our own and let God happen to us until his word is formed in us. A true prophetic word will always come simultaneously as threat and comfort, judgment and gospel, burden and joy, a sword which pierces our side and a balm that heals. It always brings about death and resurrection. And that word must be carried in our bodies and in our communities, driving us deeper into each other's hearts and prayers until we all, like Mary, are made into the living temple for Emmanuel. And so that's my reflection on Mary. You can read that and much more on my Substack feed, uh, which is linked below. Like I said, I think I'll probably do a few more of these reflections here from time to time, and uh, hopefully they bless you as well. And so next time you hear me, we'll be back in our study of Ezra and Nehemiah. Thanks so much, and we'll see you on the other side.